This is Dr. William B. Williams from 10K a Day Dentist, the 5M Mastermind, and the director of Solstice Dot Academy. You are listening to Hashtag POD, Podcast of Dentistry with Dr. Panks. This podcast is sponsored by Rocketbook. I hate wasting paper. If I could, I would not use pen and paper at all. But I love the feeling of writing and drawing with pen on a nice paper. Somehow, I feel I'm connected to it, but always hated the fact that I cannot bring my drawings or ideas to the digital world. Now, Rocketbook is the exact amalgamation of both the physical and the virtual world. Hear this. You can draw or write on the Rocketbook, take a picture with the Rocketbook app, and magically it cleans the picture and sends it to Google Drive, Evernote, Dropbox, OneDrive, OneNote, Slack, Box, iCloud, iMessage, or even classic email. Just configure the symbols once, and that's it. You snap a picture, and your drawings or plans or notes are right in the Drive or Dropbox or anything that you choose to send it to. Once you're done, simply use a moist towel. Yes, a moist paper towel. And you can erase it. Only to be used again. Simply saving paper. Simply head over to podcastsofdentistry.com slash rocketbook. Welcome to Hashtag POD, podcastsofdentistry.com. Today's guest at Hashtag POD is Dr. Travis Campbell, who's a coach, consultant, practice owner, and an entrepreneur. We talk on all range of topics, from startups, team management, insurance, businesses, businesses and its efficiencies and inefficiencies. Dr. Campbell shares his journey of almost going to sell away his practice and how he turned it around, all the foundational changes he made to make his practice successful again. He shares all the mistakes he made during his journey practicing as a dentist and how he learned from his mistakes and finally coaching our audience. He discusses the perks of being the owner of the dental office and how to figure out if you even want to be a business owner. We had a good discussion about how to balance between clinical dentistry, volume of clinical dentistry, profits, and still enjoy the dentistry with least amount of stress. I call this as the catch-22 situation. He explains the reason for him firing almost 40 employees in the first few years of opening the dental office versus firing only one or two in the past five years. He shares a lot of personal examples of managing the staff, managing the team members and insurance. He shares what is the biggest issue that gives the most grief to the dentist. He also differentiates the thought process between a dentist and the insurance company and how he gets almost all of his insurance claims paid. He also delves into marketing and discusses in detail about the return of investment. We discuss in detail about the methodology to make more efficiency and profit in the office. He discusses who should hire a coach, if at all, and what changes that we need to make before hiring a coach or a consultant for the dental office. He talks in detail about the most common inefficiencies in the office 
and how to reduce them by giving examples from his own personal and their life. Obviously, we share our Tim Ferriss inspired questions, morning rituals, best practices, best purchases, best books and so on. Last but not the least, he touches about the abundance and clarity mindset. I hope you like this wide range of conversations as much as I do. So without further ado, Dr. Travis Campbell at practicewhisper.com. So if you want to if you want to go ahead and tell me uh for like 15 seconds, 20 seconds uh about yourself. Okay. Uh, well, I'm Dr. Travis Campbell. I did a startup practice when I first graduated 10 years ago. Um, and I constantly tell people I made every mistake possible owning <laughs> a business. And I mean, for me, I just took it as a challenge to learn more. So I learned how to run a business better. I learned how to fix all the mistakes that I made. Um, I learned that a lot of it depends on the team. So kind of learning how to manage that helped a ton. And then, you know, in recent years, I've, I spend a lot of time on Facebook and Dentaltown and everywhere else, just kind of helping other dentists, you know, make it through without all the mistakes I've made. Um, a lot of what I enjoy nowadays is focusing on business and insurance and all the things that used to stress me out um, to try to avoid other people from reaching that same point. I almost sold my office a few years ago um, completely to corporate and then we turned it around and things have been going great ever since. Great. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the quick introduction. Now, uh, going back to um, going back to the, 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 the space, you said that you almost sold your office. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know that might be your pain point, but still, would you like to share uh, what made you even come to that decision or come to that point? What was your breaking point? Um, I mean, several years ago, I was working a lot. I took work home, which I don't recommend to do. Um, I wasn't making a ton, and a lot of what I was making was eaten up by loans because I had bought some things that I didn't need to buy, overpurchased, like probably a lot of us. Um, The stress just of all of that combined with just the day-to-day running of an office and a few other things just got it to an almost breaking point. So, you know, we all get these letters from like Heartland and other places. Yeah. Hey, sell your office. So I had one sitting on my desk for about six months. Um, Just, you know, every day I just look at it and go, "Hmm, should I or should I not? Um, So, yeah, but I never did. And, you know, I, turned things around and learned how to run the business better and learned how to manage the team better and manage insurance better. And yeah, it's worked out a whole lot better since, but I know, I mean, I get messages almost from dentists probably every other day that are either creeping up to that point or have hit that point and are trying to figure out what they're going to do moving forwards. And some of them sell and a lot of them don't. So a lot of them just need kind of like I did a way out so, it's fun uh, for me to be able to give them a way to avoid <laughs> good. that. So did you say uh, you did not even end up selling it, but you were at the breaking point uh, looking into sell it to Heartland or whatnot? Am I right? 
Yes. Heartland was the one that was on my desk forever. Um, I was pretty close to selling for a while. I don't have a Heartland letter on my desk anymore. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it was it was a stressful time. And so, but when you start paying off some loans and you learn to run the business better and you realize that there is hope and there is a way out um, and you realize that, you know, if you want to run an office, I mean, that's really the, the real breaking point I find for people that can see the light at the end of the tunnel is, is it something they really want to do? And I mean, that's kind of the debate I have with some dentists is not every dentist wants to run a business, even though somehow our industry and our education, everything kind of pushes ownership as the best thing out there. Yeah. I don't think everybody it is because some people just don't want that level of stress. And honestly, life's too short to, you know, be dealing with stress that you don't really want to deal with. And I know some associates that make far more than owners. So it's, it doesn't need to be a financial thing. It just needs to be a, you know, what do you want to do? And if you want to run a business, great. Find somebody to help you if you're struggling and you can get there. And if you don't really want to run the business, then find a way to be an awesome associate and don't run the business. I mean. Got it. So, um, so you never, you never sold it, but you were at the breaking point. What was uh, your thought process at that time that you decided no, I, or at least what convinced you, you yourself, uh, that you can turn it around? Uh, I mean, I had hired several coaches and consultants over the years, so okay. I started putting into action some of the things they did. Yeah. I mean, the reason I spent so much money on consultants is I, I went into it a lot of times with the wrong idea in mind. You know, majority of the times when you're looking at making some changes, like hiring someone, you know, I think a lot of us, and I did, thought that you can just pay someone to come just fix your problems. But the issue is most consultants aren't there to fix your problems. They're just to give you the pathway and you've got to fix your own issues. Hmm. So once I started realizing that I was more in charge of my life and my office and what the results were and I actually had to make a change... That's when, you know, the consultants actually started helping a lot more. I mean, they were given the same amount of help the entire time. It's just I was accepting it a lot more. And it started actually sinking in. Okay, so some consultants tried to help you and you couldn't really implement it because you were not yourself ready. Am I right to say? Uh, yeah, that's a fair statement. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what was the you know, a mindset that you had to bring it to, you know, all right, I got to make it happen. Uh, either it's do or die kind of situation. What, what prompted you? What did you talk to yourself um, before you actually started implementing what the consultant said? Do you remember? I mean, it's a, mm. I know it's a while, but. I don't know if there was any just one point. It was more of a, just a slow progress, a slow process of, you know, things start improving as I made changes. And, you know, that's the thing is most changes you're going to make aren't going to be overnight improvements. And it's another thing to realize, you know, you can't change everything at once. And most change does not have an immediate impact. Um, and so, you know, you've got to be patient with it and 
that's where kind of developing a, a long-term plan and sticking to it and kind of having an idea of what you want to move forward um, can make a big difference because without a plan, often you'll struggle at the patience yeah. to see things actually start changing. Right, right. Uh, I think I completely agree with, um, you know, uh, to figure out what exactly you want, you know, what exactly as a dentist who is trying to bring in the consultants. But uh, somebody who is, you know, a recent graduate um, who's coming out in 2018, 2019, and, you know, so on, a new, new dentist, uh, they don't know anything. I mean, honestly, I myself, I mean, I graduated in 2012. I still don't know what I want, honestly. So what do you think they can, you know, ask themselves? Uh, what questions they should ask uh, or write or discuss it with their peers, mentors, you know, seasoned dentists that they should, re you know, they're they close to what they exactly want rather than, uh, you know, just buying uh, scanners and CVCTs and, you know, whatnot. Well, I think a lot of it, I mean, everybody's different. So it's what piece of information is going to make that difference for someone is going to be different for pretty much every dentist. Right. But I'd say, you know, if, if you're trying to make that decision of whether to be a business owner or not, I would say look into what it takes. And a lot of that can be, there's some great books out there um, to read. I mean, E-Myth is probably the first one I ever recommend someone read just yeah. because it can give you an idea of why most business owners fail. Yeah. And that book so talks to dentists in that. And actually, there's a dentist version of it, too. Oh, really? But Oh, yeah. And, I mean, the biggest point about that book I got out of it was, you know, when you're running a business, there's kind of three hats that you wear. You're the technician because kind of you're the one who is designed to do stuff. And right. for as a dentist, I mean, that's what we are as technicians. And then you're also an office manager and you're also an entrepreneur. Well, most dentists naturally gravitate to what we're trained on, which is the technician side. And we tend to kind of push the other two off to the side. And that's why a lot of our businesses don't work out well. I mean, some of the best clinical dentists I know aren't running what most people consider highly successful businesses, even though based on their skills, they should be some of the best in the world. Um, and it's because, you know, you've got to put a good amount of effort and, you know, energy into all three hats to make a business successful. And that's the thing is if, if you're willing and wanting to do that, great. I mean, once I learned more about business, I got comfortable with it. I kind of found I enjoyed it. And that's why I talk about it a lot. But I know sometimes when they start learning more and more about the business, it just stresses them out and they pull back. Well, okay, fine. If you don't want to run a business, great. Don't. Um, I mean, there's plenty of group practices or there's plenty of, well, I wouldn't say there's plenty. There's some good corporate offices, not that many, but there's a few. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's there's just plenty of jobs out there. But the big thing is to realize, and I think this is some of our struggle too, is dental school does not train us well on communication at all. And I truly believe that the way they teach us to talk to patients is completely backwards. And so once I started changing how I had conversations with team members and patients, things changed as a dentist. Hmm. And... 
that is irregardless of whether you're a business owner or not, just purely being a dentist. If you want to be successful, regardless of whether you run a business or not, most of it comes from our ability to communicate well with others and to develop a rapport with people quickly, because that's what we're trying to do with patients. Um, you know, I know I used to do this. You know, if you spend a lot of your time and effort trying to educate someone about all the intricacies of dentistry, yeah, we're going to fail. Okay. Because in most patients, because what will happen is we overwhelm them with information that they don't have the four years of training to understand like we do. And all they hear is blah, 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 lots of money, blah, 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 blah. Lots of pain. You don't have any options. Yes. <laughs> Versus if you just chit chat with the patient and say, hey, look, what are you looking for? Because I can tell you what's best for a tooth. But I can't tell you what's best for your life and your budget and your schedule and your time. I mean, that's where I found a lot of my treatment planning changing is that, you know, I don't look at every patient and go, man, you need an ideal mouth because that's not what they need. That's not what they want. And when we try to change someone else's wants and desires, that's when we tend to have treatment declinations or people who are unhappy with it after the fact. Versus if we have a little more of a conversation with them at the beginning and see what their overall goal is, then maybe doing some implants is not the best idea. Maybe they're going to be happy with a partial. I mean, you got to have that conversation with people, not just give them the, you know, everybody the Cadillac plan or everybody the, you know, the four different plans that you can come up with because, I don't know, we like talking about dentistry way too much. Yeah. Got it. So, uh, so there is a lot of a uh, lot of things you're trying to say about uh, communication, business, uh, good corporate uh, company. I mean, I can go in different directions all all around here, uh, <clears throat> but just for a little fun, uh, just for a little fun, uh, what corporate structure or companies do you like, or would you like to talk about it, if at all? Uh... Do you like? I don't really want to talk about specific companies because that gets into negatives of which ones aren't. Right. But I mean, the big thing is in general, Yeah. any company that focuses on the business and kind of leaves the clinical purely to the dentist, I would say would make probably a good company. Okay. Um, and you can usually tell that pretty quickly is if they're going to try to push you on clinical to do things that is not kind of comfort level for you. Um, that's when you hesitate. Now, the other thing I usually tell people, especially younger dentists, is, again, most of how we're trained in dental school is not correct for real life. Now, some of what we're trained clinically is because that's probably the best way to teach us to think critically, but it's not the best way to do dentistry. And so, like, a lot of the ways I do dentistry now are completely different than when I you know, was trained in dental school sure. and some of the basics are the same, but I mean, how I prep crowns is so different than how I used to. Um, some of the misconceptions I got from dental school now I realize are no longer true. And so, you know, when you hear good information or information that's contrary to what your training is, my suggestion is at least reach out to some more experienced dentists that you trust to see if it's truly useful information or somebody's truly trying to, kind of push you down the gray scale of maybe not ethical. Um, and that's, that's the, that's the balancing act. I usually tell people, cause I'm like, look, 
if somebody tells you something that doesn't sound right, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Um, I mean, for instance, I'm telling people every day things that I get told a lot are like, no, that can't be right. No, that can't be right. And then, you know, six months or a year later, they're like, oh, yeah, you were right. You know, it's just, yeah, it is what it is. And, you know, it's one of those things that if you live in a cave and somebody tries to tell you about the sky, it's going to be hard to see it until you actually get out there and see it. Right. So, right. Now, uh, I think um, I'm, I'm thinking like a, a, like a fresh graduate, a new graduate uh, from a dental school. Um, uh, there are two components you mentioned about, like one, okay, uh, how, what do I do, what patients want? You know, implant is not the perfect choice or the catalytic treatment is not the perfect choice. That's one part of the thing, uh, one part of the mm-hmm. equation. The second equation is I have $400,000 of loan or you know, $300,000. <laughs> so, you know, it's so hard. Either I I do what my patients want to mm-hmm. do, right? If I if I do only what my patients want to do, then I am probably not able to going to be able to make my student loans minimum payment next month. Uh, or mm-hmm. vice versa, if I try to push my patient a little more to do, hey, if not implants, at least do a bridge. It's faster, blah, 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 you know. And how do I balance those two things? Do you, you see what yeah, I'm saying? That's a great question. I think it's a lot of things we all struggle with. But I'd say in general, if you, if you truly learn to communicate with patients and truly learn to f- pull out of them what they actually want, not what they initially tell you, um, if you can ask the right questions, then you'll usually get more to the heart of the matter and the money will flow. And here's the thing to realize too. Um, now this obviously probably makes a little bit more of a difference as a business owner than an associate, sure. but in general, most treatments that we provide, the lower dollar treatments are often the things that make us more money per time. Hmm. And that's our limiting factor. So for instance, you know, I can take out a tooth for 200 bucks. Okay, it's only 200 bucks, but it also only takes me like two to three minutes. I mean, nothing is quicker than an extraction. Nothing is more profitable than an extraction, especially multiples. And so, you know, if I've got a patient that's like on the fence about, well, do I save it and, you know, maybe not make my house payment next month? Or do I take it out and my life is just a lot more comfortable in general? I'm going to tell them to take it out because... A, it's better for the patient in their current situation. And B, for me, I'm good either way. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's realizing that the more you take care of patients in the way that they need, um, the more things will flow towards you. For instance, your treatment acceptance will go up. And, you know, most dentist treatment acceptance rates, I'd say, is on average below 50%. I get most of these numbers from, like, dental intel and things, and they have hundreds of thousands of dentists that they track. But if you think about that, if you can double your treatment acceptance rate, then you will cut the basically cut the wasted time of your exams in half. Now, all that time can be devoted towards treatment. And it will be devoted towards treatment. So it's not thinking of each individual patient as how much can I get out of that one. It's thinking of the bigger picture of how can I be most effective at my job? Because, again, if a patient feels like we are out there for literally their best interest, 
then not only are they going to accept our treatment and be happy with it, they're also going to refer other patients to us. And if most of us think about, most of us are not busy literally from eight to five every day with no breath. I mean, there's a lot of breaks because of cancellations, no-shows, or just holes in the schedule. Well, the better care you take care of patients, the more those holes fill up and the more money we make. And it doesn't have to be off one individual patient. So that's the thing I've really, you know, caution people with is don't think about your own financial situation when determining treatment plans and talking to patients, because when you don't, the money will actually come quicker than when you do, because patients can sense it. Yeah. So, okay. So we just flow with the flow of the patients, more patients come in, uh, I do more procedures but doesn't that start the whole cycle of volume again? Uh, right? I mean, I'm doing more work. Though I think that is what happened to you when you were almost at the break point, when you were doing a lot of work, bringing it back to home, right? I'm not trying to catch you. Right. No, you're right. I'm only trying to understand the balance of all the three things together so that, uh, you know, new dentist or whoever, for that matter, I mean, Everybody can understand the intricacy of such a thing. See what I'm saying? No, and I think the point is a great point. The struggle is a struggle that a lot of us deal with, and it's a struggle I used to deal with. But the thing to realize is, again, it's not about our individual life. You know, if it and it, if you think about it, the stress that I had, rarely was it dental in nature. Okay. It was human resources. It was budgeting for the office. It was, you know, how to deal with a team member that I just had to replace or fire. It rarely was the issues that really caused me a lot of stress and made me, you know, take kind of the mental work home. Um, it's not the dentistry. It's everything else that we deal with. And here's the thing, you know, we're talking about what treatments to provide the things that will stress us out are things that stress the patients out too. If we end up providing care for a patient that was beyond their means, they're never going to be happy with it. And therefore that's going to stress us out later versus if we just provided the patient, what was probably better for the patient, things are happier all around. Hmm. So that's why I think it's, again, the stress doesn't come from dentistry. And I think a majority of that comes from the fact that if you think about in general in life, a majority of our stress is going to come from things that we are not confident about, mm. that we are not well-trained in. Right. Well, most of us are very well-trained in dentistry. Mm -hmm. That's not the problem. Yeah. We're not trained in communications and leadership and business. Those are the things that tend to stress us out. Now, from an associate's point of view, that doesn't have to deal with most of that. You know, you still have the leadership and communication issues because even if you're not in charge of the office, you're still considered the leader because you're the most educated person there. You're the doctor. You kind of make all the decisions from at least a clinical point of view. But that's where, you know, it comes into play of how about this? This is probably a good example. Right. I talk to people about CE all the time. Sure. And when you first get out and I had this problem, I took a bunch of like really heavy CE, new things I never knew. I was like, yeah, clinical's cool. I enjoy it. I spend <laughs> a lot of money doing it and then learn all this new stuff and then don't end up doing it. 
because I didn't have the communication skills to get patients to accept the treatment. And so... Or, or maybe even patients, you know, uh, yeah. you know maybe even patients. Like uh, sometimes patients, we are just a startup practice. We don't have all those full mouth rehabs cases just sitting around because they don't have the confidence in 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 a new office who can even handle such a complicated uh, procedure anyways right carry on and so in early years of a dentist i highly suggest avoid clinical education as much as possible now a lot of us have to take it you know for licensure and something else okay fine take the minimal clinical i would say focus more on the the more interpersonal skills because that is what's going to slingshot our career faster than anything else because if you learn communication if you learn leadership if you learn how to basically negotiate with people and persuade them in a ethical way then you will end up finding that you can basically talk anybody into the treatment that fits their life into actually getting it done and paying for it. And therefore, when you do later learn these higher end clinical skills, they'll actually be useful as opposed to being going to a waste. And so that's where, you know, most associates, and here's an interesting statistic too. Most associates will produce at least 30% less than an owner doctor. Most often, the reason is mentality. Um, the owner doctor is just more kind of bought in to their patients. And that's not to say that the associates don't care. It's just it's a different mindset. And it's so common across the industry that it's very well known that most associates don't produce as much. Given the same number of patients, the same quality of patients, everything else. Well, most of this is because owners tend to focus on those interpersonal business communication skills more than associates tend to right. naturally. Yeah. And that, I'd say, is the biggest difference between what will end up being a successful dentist and end up being maybe a struggling dentist is all the non-clinical skills. And so that's why I always suggest to, well, any dentist is struggling, but definitely new dentists, is focus on those skills that are outside of clinic. Got it. So focus on initially focus on the business aspect of it, you know, the team management aspect of it, the human resources aspect of it. That will take you farther. And by the time you are able to do more, you'll be able to save more with less lesser procedures or whatever. You'll be able to make more. And then essentially that would be your uh, starting point to do some expensive courses like full mouth rehab, implants or whatnot. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Got it. So um, uh, what, since we are already talking about so many uh, important things, team management, communication, human resources, uh, you pick one and, you know, we can go on forever all these, about all these topics because uh, my friends and I talk to uh, all the time, like, you know, Panks, this, the toughest thing we handle is handling the staff. Mm-hmm. As you said, uh, how would you handle, uh, you know, if a staff is fired or sick or, you know, uh, or one of the assistants or hygienists is not available? What would you do in such a scenario? So one of the things that really changed my mindset a few years ago, which made HR so much easier, human resources, sure, was the idea that most problems 
in the office, even though I thought they had to do with the team member, typically had far more to do with my issues than their issues. Interesting. And I say I say that from a point of think about it this way. We are the ones, especially for the owners, but we are the ones that guide the team. We're the ones that train the team. And that can be both of those are associate or owner. Um, we're the ones who set the tone for the office. And so if we're setting a negative tone, people are going to follow that. Versus if we set a positive tone, people are going to tend to follow that. Now, yes, in general, there's some you know, t- staff members that are just going to be awesome regardless. And there's some staff members that are just going to be toxic regardless. But those are the extremes. A majority of the people that you work with on a day-to-day basis are going to follow the tone that you set. And so I would say in a vast majority of times, the dentist owner and the dentist, whether they're an owner or not, have far more control over the success of a team member than we even realize. And that's stressful and frightening at the same time as empowering. Because here's the thing, if we're in that much control, that means a lot of it's on us. And if it screws up, it's our fault. But at the same time, it's easier to change yourself than it is to try to change someone else. And when most of us find that mentality, that that mindset change to realize that we're the problems, in most cases, that's when the breakthrough light comes through and realize that we can actually do a lot more than we think. So, for example, um, when a team member screws up something, mm-hmm. let's say, you know, for instance, a staff member didn't do the lab stuff correctly. Sure. Well, I mean, you kind of got two options. You either go to your assistant and go, man, Judy, you just fucked this up and, you know, we need to do better and, you know, why did you screw it up and everything else? Well, obviously person's not going to like you. They're probably not going to pay attention to you much. They're going to be unhappy. They're likely going to go, go cry in the break room um, <laughs> yeah. versus, and you're not likely to get the result that you want. You're probably going to end up eventually having to let them go because the negativity causes a cascade effect versus if you went to them and go, Hey, look, this is the problem that happened. So let's talk about what can we do to make sure this never happens again? And now you're pulling them in as a colleague. You're pulling them in as, you know, someone who's important, who can have a decision moving forward. And the important part about that is they start owning the process and they start owning the improvements. And you do it in a positive way and you empower them to be able to make these improvements. And you move forwards in a more positive light. And so I'll say, you know, in my first five years, I probably fired over 40 people. Wow. And in the last five years, I have fired two. Mm -hmm. And it's not because every staff member stayed with me forever, because some of them have moved and things like that. It's I've changed how I handle things. Mm -hmm. Now, some of it is I also put some of it on my office manager and she handles stuff, but you know, a majority of it is, you know, I stopped going through assistance when I stopped, started learning how to communicate with them better. Because the assistant was usually the one that we rotated through more than anything. Um, and it's all on me. I mean, and that's the thing to realize as a dentist is a lot of the problem is you. And once you can realize that, man, 
sky's the limit. Got it. So, in short, the the dentist is the one who has to be uh, taking his uh, team members as actually the team members and not mm-hmm. not really uh, a servant or you know. Absolutely. Uh, so what? That's what, why you'll have so many consultants, and this is like one of those common things out there that you don't like calling people staff or employees. You want to call them team members because that's truly what they are. Because if you look at every highly successful dental office, it's not the dentist that's the main drive for that. It's the team. I mean, the dentist can be awesome, but the team is the only thing that can catapult their success to the high end. And once you realize that and once you can cultivate a good team, everything else comes from that. Because there is nothing we can do on our own in a void. And if we don't have a good team, yeah, we can somewhat succeed, but we're never going to reach that top end. Uh, I have a very good question pertaining to a similar topic. Uh, so you have a good team. It's working good. Everything is cool. Everything is good. And then, um, you know, somebody says, I'm going to pay you, you know, $2 per hour more, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, you were nice with the patient, not patient. You were nice with the team member all throughout. She was good. You were good. She would even come when you were, when she was sick or, you know, she's very loyal. And then comes in those $2, $3, $4. The point is, how do you, you know, retain that team? That's another big thing. Uh, I, 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 I keep seeing all those established offices who are doing uh, dentistry for like 20, 30, 40 years, right? Uh, they have the team which has last, lasted them for like 30 years, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, and by the time you go ahead and you, somebody else to, comes to buy that office, they see those team members being paid $40 an hour, you know? Uh, is money mm-hmm. the only thing that you're going to keep the team members uh, you know, staying with you because absolutely not. Yeah, I, I believe the, you. I I know that, but I'm trying to pick your brain on that. How to retain such employees? Then, so the thing, and it's a hard thing to realize, is and like Gallup, which does polls of all sorts of stuff every year for the last 50 years, they've been doing polls, and never has money hit the top three most important things that employees want. Never. Right. Money's not the thing. But here's the thing we, we don't realize is people use the excuse of money and people will talk about money more because it's an easy, tangible thing to discuss. It's the same thing as a patient saying, well, I'm not going to do treatment plan because of money. Well, rarely is that actually the case. They're not doing treatment plan because they don't trust you or they don't value what you talk to them about or you haven't linked it to what they want. Right. With an employee, realize money is usually at the low end of the list. Now, yes, it's important to pay them enough that they can live. But what people tend to want in a job far exceeds the money. And the top three almost always are the same. It's appreciation for what Mm -hmm. they do. Mm -hmm. And that's in their own language. So a great book is by, um, what is his name, Chapman. And he wrote the book, The Five Love Languages, which is an awesome personal book. But he then turned around and wrote the book, um, 
oh, what is it? The five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And it's a great way to realize that while we may think that we're, you know, showing appreciation to an employee, if it's the wrong language, they don't feel it at all. Hmm. And so it's a great book to even work with your team so that they understand what your language is and you understand what theirs is. So for instance, now I've got a team member that I can, you know, say great things about every day. It ain't going to get to her because she's more like me. I don't really care what you say about me. <laughs> okay. It sounds nice, but in the long run, it doesn't mean anything. But when you do little acts of service, like for instance, I will go to her, you know, on a hard day, I'll tell her she did a great job, but then I'll actually say, Hey, look, is there anything I can do for you or just go do it? And those little things mean so much more to her than words and vastly more important than money. Hmm. So that's the thing is most of the times they're speaking the wrong language. The second thing most people tend to really want is clear expectations, which if you actually think about it, most of us don't give. And this is clear expectations in terms of every little detail. So for instance, you know, a lot of times we'll complain to our team that they didn't do X, Y, and Z. But you've got to think back and you've got to think, did I tell them not only to do it, but exactly how to do it and followed up to make sure that they understood what we told them? Because language is an imperfect art. You know, what we say is not what we think because, you know, the English language is just, it's constricted. But at the same time, the words that we put out aren't translated the same to someone else's brain. And so we may say something that we think is completely clear, but the person that is on the receiving end doesn't actually get the message that we're trying to portray. And so that's one thing is, you know, did we have clear expectations? Did we actually follow up with it? Did we have good training systems or not? And again, when I went back to we're the problem, that's one of them is realizing that language is different. And then the third thing that usually people want is to feel like they're in a valuable position. And that's hard to do unless you get the whole team on board. And it's more along the lines of if you've ever had an office talk about having like core values, that's the huge part of it is, you know, if we don't give our team a set of values that we're trying to push, Mm -hmm. um, then most people fall back to it being about money. And again, money's not a good motivator. So it's, it's the intangibles that get employees to be happy and stay with their position. Because here's the thing. If somebody's going to leave you for a dollar an hour more, it's highly stressful to go to a new office. They aren't, aren't going to do it if they're actually happy in your office. Right. So if somebody's leaving you for a small amount of increase, what you really need to think about is what did I do wrong in the environment that I set that that little amount of money would make such a big difference. Because if we truly valued them and truly showed appreciation, truly had clear expectations and truly provided an environment where they felt valued, right. a dollar or two more is not going to make a difference at all. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I know. Uh, I completely, completely agree with that. I think uh, I see a difference um, uh, in many offices. One of my assistants, she was sick the other day, and I was like, she has no car. I said, you know what? Fortunately, my schedule wasn't that tight. I went to drop her. You know, mm-hmm. um, not a big deal. She could have, I could have Ubered it, but I just wanted her to be safe and just go home, dropped her, came back, continued my dentistry. 
without her and with the help of my front desk, I really appreciate, along with not to mention my hygienist. It worked out. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, as you said, the little things make big differences. Little things and here's the thing. Even if, let's say you did the languages of appreciation, and even if, because that's an act of service, even if an act of service was not that employee's appreciation language, somebody else likely that at least somebody else in the office it is, and they see that, and they will gain more loyalty to you, even though what you did was not for them. Makes sense. They will see that you did it for someone else that is at their same level. So, yeah, it's it goes, and that's where some of this is not an overnight change, because if you have been doing things that maybe, you know, aren't seen as greatest things in the world to your team, when you start making changes, it's going to take them a while to realize that there is actually a change. And that's where it's got to be, you know, it takes time. But do we have that much time to keep learning all those little things and, you know, keep implementing those little things? Uh, how do you... I mean, you, you've you been talking about books. Is it Gary Chapman, you said, right? Yes, that's okay. it. Uh, the Five Love Languages, uh, The Secret to Love, that last. Is that the one? or? That's his first book, I believe. That's okay. the one most people know him for. Um, okay. It's the Five Languages of Appreciation the Workplace is really the one from a business point of view. Got and it. really any dentist. I would say any dentist should read that, whether they're an associate or not, because it will allow you to have better interpersonal connections with your team and sometimes your patients. Um, okay. Got it. So uh, uh, I just uh, was thinking that, do you have any specific stories or any particular story that you are uh, and you would like to share where one of the team members, you know, gave you a really hard time and it spoiled the whole environment at the office and you literally you didn't know what to do i mean and how do you handle it essentially in the long run hmm. um i was thinking a few years ago because i haven't had those issues much recently that's good um so for instance i've had employees in the past that were insubordinate Basically, they didn't listen to instructions or what I wanted or anything else. And it's frustrating. And typically what it ends up is is a negativity cascade of they're not doing something. You get mad at them. You voice anger in one way or another. Um, and then they get more upset at you. And then you get more upset at them. And it ends up with them no longer being there. But... Over the years, I've had to realize that a lot of it requires two sides. And so if somebody's mad at you, you know, fighting back with negativity never works because all that does is create, you know, a negative environment on both ends. Coming back to them as a, sometimes people hear this as, you know, take the higher ground yeah, or take the higher road. It really works. Because if somebody's upset and ticked off and you go to them as the calm, positive, you know, willing to listen person, they will magically start coming to your level and things work out better. And then you can have a better level of communication and you can work out what the problem is. 
you know, for instance, one of the things I tell people all the time that I've had to learn over the years is when you're talking to somebody, especially when you're talking to them about a challenge or an upset or a problem, is avoid any statement that starts with you. Because if you think about it, when you start a statement with you, you almost invariably will create a defense mechanism. Because if you say you did X or you screwed up or you X, Y, and Z, it doesn't matter. The person's naturally going to retreat and defend themselves. Yeah, probably. Even if they were wrong. Yeah, we almost can't help it. And so, but if you go to them instead and say, look, this happened. How can I help you make sure that, or how can I help the situation so that this doesn't happen again? And so you've taken it away from them as it being a personal issue and you put it onto, you know, it's a overall issue. Just here's the problem and let's as, you know, positive and team members work through what the solution is going to be. And, I respect you enough to bring you into this conversation and not just dictate the answer to you. But here's the thing. When you actually involve people like that, then they're more likely to move forwards with whatever you decide. And here's the thing. A lot of us think that we always have the answer, but sometimes we don't. And again, going back to like the patient, you know, Treatment A may not be the best thing for this patient, but it'll be the best thing for this other patient because their lives are different and their what they see is different. Their values are different. Well, your team members are the same thing in that I could train one assistant one way and it works awesome. I could train another assistant that same exact way and it doesn't work well because she's a different person. She's learned differently. And so what I've talked about a lot is, you know, when you're trying to delegate a task or teach someone a task, some of it is backing away enough and saying, look, here's the result I want. Let's have, let's figure out together what process is going to work well for you because the process for you may not be the process for the next girl. Right, right, right. And I'm, I'm glad you picked up this topic. It's a, it's a very tough topic of training. You know, it's so hard to train. You work so hard. And the staff is happy, everything is going smooth, and life happens, right? You know, uh, she has to move out, she's going, she's going to a hygiene school now, you know, and whatnot, right? Now the same talented, trained uh, staff or team member, uh, she has to leave for good reasons. How do you continue the training level to the next staff? Uh, or at least how did you do it after you had, you know, a couple or initial initially, how did you do it? So some of this is planning ahead and realizing that the time that you have that's slow, you need to work through and make use of. So for instance, if you have a great team member, it's because she's figured out processes that work well for her. Well, you're going to lose her at some point. I mean, it may be a month from now, it may be 10 years from now, but she's not going to work for you forever because life happens. So use that time and take your good team members and have them actually write down what it is that they do, what it is that makes them good at their job. And, 
the more of this you have written down, the more of it that you can easily transfer to the next person. Because it's really difficult to just off the cuff, try to train someone in every little nitpicky detail that's required in dentistry. Right. And yet the more you write down, the more likely you are to not only be able to communicate that better, but also to find the things that maybe you missed. And so having an office training manual is huge. And I don't mean an office manual where most people think about that's an employment manual. I'm talking about a training manual that actually shows not only verbally, but, you know, if pictures, what each step is, how to do each step, how to work through each step. And if you have that, you can take what may take somebody a year to learn and knock it down into a few weeks. I mean, it's that powerful. And then if you want to take it a step further, take all of that and put it into a video format. But start with the pictures and the, you know, the wording first. But and then changing into video later is easy. But that's one of those things is, you know, if you've got Susie that's worked for you for 10 years that you don't have any written material on. Yeah, it's going to be insanely difficult to try to replace Susie. But if during that time period, Susie's written down every little thing she does and has put it all together in kind of like a little binder as a reference material. Yeah. Then you can hand, you know, hand that to Anne, your new girl, and say, hey, look, this is everything that Susie did. This is exactly, you know. A to B of or A to Z of how she did it. Yeah. Just read through this, and you know, if you come up with a challenge, it's a reference manual. Go back and see, you know, the process again. If you need a refresher, go do it. And therefore, they don't have to ask somebody else and now waste two people's time trying to figure out how to do a task. Now they can just use it themselves. Got it. Got it. No, that's a that's a good idea. I, I was actually uh, I and me, and my friend, keep going through this process of oh. You know, that staff has to leave because, as I said, life happened. And I have always been in, I'm a little more techie than my other friend. So I can, you know, do a little more stuff. And I said, oh, maybe I can do screencasting and, you know, things like that. Maybe doing the recording and, you know, video, audio and so on. Um, uh, but yes, thank you. Uh, that helps. Um, now, I think we should switch gears towards insurances. Seems like you you talk a lot about insurances, too. I know we can talk about it all day. What is the biggest mistake that we all naive dentists do that gives us the most grief <laughs> for the insurance portion? I'd say the biggest issue we have is thinking that insurance companies do or should think like we do. And that never works out well. Here's the thing. Insurance companies are businesses. They are not dentists. They're not even healthcare providers. They don't give a damn about dentistry. They don't care a flip about patients. They never will. And it erodes our mental status to try to claim that they should. They shouldn't. An insurance company is one thing. It is a company that is beholden to stockholders that is all about profit. Now, whether you want to consider that good or bad, fine but that is what they are, it will never change. Right. And so we're not going to change them. Why that's important is to realize that when we get, like the most frustrating things, claims that get denied, the most common reaction I see to a dentist, especially if a dentist asks a bunch of other dentists is, oh, the insurance company is just evil and stupid and blah, 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 it's the insurance company's problem. Well, no, it's usually our problem. 
because the insurance companies, for all the whatever you want to call it bad that they do, are a process-driven company. They, they are usually so large that it is all about the process. Hmm. For instance, crowns, buildups, we almost never get them denied. Here's okay. why. Because I know exactly what the insurance company is looking for. It's not what I want to give them. It's what they want me to give them. And if I provide them what they want, they will pay every time. If I don't provide them what they want, they will fight it every time. So, for instance, you know, cracked teeth is an easy one to talk about. If you think about a tooth, let's say a molar, number three, for instance, has a large silver filling in it. And it's got fractures all throughout, you know, every cardinal direction, there's this huge fracture and the patient talks about pain on biting. Well, obviously that tooth needs crown. crown. And I think every dentist would agree with that. However, the insurance company does not see that they have not talked to the patient. And if you look at the PA, the PA looks like a perfectly healthy tooth with a large silver filling in it. There is right. nothing in there that shows an outside person that a crown needs to be done. So we need to change the data that's submitted to actually show what we're seeing. And so for instance, instead of taking a PA before we work on it, why not take a PA after the amalgam's removed and the fractures are removed and the unsupported enamel is removed? Then that PA is gonna look like a tooth that needs crown. Right. And here's the thing, that is the, that is the point at which we truly decide 100% that the tooth needs a crown. Well, that's what the insurance company needs to see, is they need to see that point that we have made that final determination. It's no going back. This needs a crown. That's the information that needs to get submitted. If you do that, you will get paid every time. And that's the kind of the mental change that needs to happen to realize that insurance companies want a list of very specific things. And often they're not hard things to provide. They're just things that most of us aren't trained to provide. Right. Um, scaling root plane is another thing. Those are kind of the two biggest. Um, most of us, and personally it's, it's the same, have lousy education in Perio. <laughs> Baylor for all the great, I mean, I love Baylor. Baylor's a great school, <laughs> but Perio was one of the worst departments. Okay. It did not teach us well. Here's the thing. You got to look at what people, you know, what the experts out there say. Everybody agrees the American Academy of Periodontology is the one who sets all the rules, the guidelines, everything else. Everybody goes by them. Here's the funny thing. The American Academy of Periodontology states that every adult patient needs a full period chart at least once a year. Right. How many of us actually do that? And here's the thing to think about. What consists of full period chart? It's not period charting or um, period probing. It's also, it's getting clinical attachment loss. Wow. And realizing that clinical attachment loss can only be determined by an addition of two numbers, which is pocket depths and gingival margins. Right. Almost every claim I've ever seen denied on scaling and replaning missed one key ingredient, which is the gingival margin. 
And without the gingival margin, the insurance company knows you cannot have determined clinical attachment loss, and therefore you cannot truly have diagnosed perio, and therefore they can accurately and correctly deny the claim that may be completely obvious that you did not submit the right data. And it's as simple as that. If you learn it's all about clinical attachment loss and that requires a gingival margin, even if it's zero, then you will get claims paid. And it's that one extra step. And this is what I talk about all the time is it's just insurance companies are process companies. If you give them what they need, they will pay claims. If you don't give them what they need, and if you want to be a stubborn dentist, it will drive you nuts. Right, right. So mm -hmm. um, uh, what else uh, do you think uh, uh, people can learn from you, uh, you know, in, in terms of insurances? You know, what other advice you can actually give it to uh, some new dentists or not-so-seasoned dentists right now? Oh, I mean, that's such a wide-ranging topic. I mean, there's a reason I have a 90-minute CE course about insurance, hmm. which almost always still develops questions. But there's a reason I put it on there. And, you know, y'all can find it on my website if you ever want. And it's on demand. It's online. You can watch it whenever you want. People have access to it, have access forever, and yeah, we'll which that. means every time I've updated it, you have access to the updated info. But, I mean, it's again to realize, to look at the data that you actually need. So, like for crowns, submitting the right information. For scaling, submitting the right information. If you get a denial, realizing where that denial is coming from. I mean, there's so many little intricacies to it that just require so much more time than we've got. But the thing to realize in most cases is, again, what we talked about before, is where's the problem? And most often, the problem is us. From insurance's point of view, it's typically just a game. If you learn to play the game well, you have a chance to win. And if you don't understand how to play the game, and if you don't understand the rules, you will always lose, like any other game on the planet. Sure. So it's all about learning the game. And so again, for instance, another thing like realizing that insurance companies, you can call this bad. It probably is, but they, however you want to state it, have a quota or whatever. They deny claims. They deny lots of claims and they have kind of maybe a quota or maybe not. I don't know, but they deny a certain number of claims all the time. Yeah. But here's the thing to realize. There are hundreds of thousands of dentists submitting claims. Well, the insurance company legally can only deny so many because they are overseen by a government entity, usually a state board of insurance, which is not any different than our state board of dental examiners. Yeah. And so if they go too far outside the lines, they have problems, which means they can't deny everyone. So here's the thing. If you're the dentist that knows more than the dentist down the street, who do you think is going to get denied? The dentist down the street. So the more you know about insurance, the more that you can provide better information than the dentist around you, the less you will get your claims denied because they will realize that other dentists are easier fish to fry than you. And that's what changes. And here's the thing. Insurance companies, again, are very detail-oriented. I mean, there's a reason that they can deal with hundreds of millions of dollars 
and come out with a profit margin of like two or three percent, which would drive dentists nuts. I mean, we would all fail if we had a profit margin that was you sure. know, destined on two or three percent. Yeah. They do it because they track every single little piece of data there is, which means everything we do is monitored. So, for instance, if you're the dentist that always submits the wrong information and always gets claims denied, and then you give up, and the dentist down the street has the same issues but never gives up, they're going to deny your claims more because you're easier. The insurance company doesn't, every time they deny a claim, every time they have to fight a claim, it takes time because one of their people has to do it. And so they realize that's a cost. And so if there's a dentist that's easier to deny, guess what? They'll deny them more. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Right. And so, you know, when I started learning insurance more, I mean, at the beginning, we had a ton of denials and we had a ton of issues and everything else. Now I have almost none. Some of it's because I submit the right info. And some of it's because the insurance companies have realized fighting me is not worth the fighting hassle. It. Yeah. And it's not because I'm any different than anybody else. It's not because I'm doing something you can't do. It's just because I've been consistent in doing it over the years that they realize they can't win with me. And so they don't try as much. You know, yes, they occasionally try and they occasionally do some delaying tactics and you know the things that annoy people. But... For me, it's just a mild annoyance now because I always know I'm going to get paid eventually hmm. because I know how to fight the game. The insurance, yeah. yeah. So uh, for I think this is also one thing uh, which I, when I recently graduated, I did not know that you need to take an X-ray uh, soon after you do a core buildup or a potion code, mm -hmm. right? I did not know. I mean, fortunately, I was in a good practice, you know, uh, they were like, the assistant was good. She was like, oh, we got to take an X-ray. I'm like, why? I mean, mm -hmm. let me finish my crown, right? Uh, because I I was thinking I'm going to lose my, I'm losing another five minutes to take another X-ray, right? Uh, but anyways, I think now. Well, here's the, Go ahead. let me fix that one statement. You're sort of right. Um, it's an X-ray or a photo. Either one will work. Okay. And honestly, in most cases, a photo is better. Because a photo gives more information to the person who's going to be looking at that claim. Realize most people who look at claims not only aren't dentists, but have zero dental knowledge. Almost everybody who looks at a claim from an insurance company's point of view typically is high school trained. And they're just trained on a list of processes that the insurance company gave them. So if your claim fits the process, it gets paid. If your claim doesn't fit the process, it gets put in the denial package. So, for instance, when it comes to buildups, yes, you need to have information after you did the buildup to, I guess the easiest way to describe it is to prove that you did a buildup. Yeah. No matter how stupid you think that is, that's just what the insurance company needs. You provide it, they pay. Um, personally, I don't like x-rays because... Honestly, I think a photo takes less time. A photo has more information in it for someone who's not trained to look at x-rays. And if you look at an x-ray and you look at a photo, typically, even from a dentist's eye, the photo is going to give you more information that says, yes, this was big and needed and everything else. So it, now I'll say this. It's whatever is easier for your team to do, but either one works. Um, and now, that's, again, learning the game. 
on a similar topic. Uh, so is it a is it like an occlusal picture uh, photo? I'm talking on photo photo. Uh, uh, it's like typically. Uh, so, but it's the photo of the angle that makes that shows the best stuff. So, for instance, if you've got okay, so I treated a tooth today. Um, the patient lost the crown, had had a cavity, she had had a root canal, and in the buildup, you could see visually the cavity in the buildup, not from the occlusal surface, but from, it was an MO filling, basically, underneath the crown. You could see it from the base of the mesial surface, where we would expect the cavity to be, you know, down further. So you couldn't take a picture directly from the occlusal, you had to take it slightly at an angle so that you could see that mesial section. So the picture it doesn't really necessarily matter what angle you take it at as long as the angle provides the best view of what you're trying to show. And that's just like any photography is figure out what you're trying to show and then angle the camera to show that the best way possible. Um, Another thing that happens a lot too is to realize that you need to have a a picture that's clear. So, you know, if you've got the tongue or the cheek in the way or the camera's not far enough away from the tooth or the camera's blurry, those don't help. So, for instance, my personal favorite is Isolite or Kona. Anything that can retract everything away from you just makes pictures so much better. Okay. Having a picture as far away from the tooth as possible typically gets you a better shot. Yeah. And then obviously having the camera focused in and dry and everything else. So there's some little intricacies of taking photos, but... If you take a good picture, I mean, that's worth more than almost anything else you can provide. Hmm. Interesting. And all that is also on your, uh, you said, uh, your online yes. online course, right? Um, yes. So, for instance, on the crowns and buildups, actually, I want to say I have like seven or eight clinical scenarios of cases that in most offices would get denied. And I show how to get them covered just by changing what you submit. Great. And again, this is all legal. It's not It's not making up data, which I've seen people do. It's not manipulating the data to show something that's incorrect. It's truly just showing exactly what the insurance company wants so that they can make an easy decision of, yep, let's pay it and move on and hassle the next dentist instead. Yeah, I think um, um, I looked up online somewhere about all those uh, courses that you have. Uh, maybe... Maybe uh, we'll put it on the show notes for everybody to go through um, uh, go through such courses, uh, especially for the insurance. At least I would like to. At least I would like mm-hmm. to personally do it. Um, uh, anyways, what other courses that you have on the same uh, same website or online portal that people can access to? Okay. Well, when the insurance course came out that I did, Invisalign actually caught on to it and asked me to make a course on insurance based on aligners. So I have an insurance course on Invisalign um, and how to get it paid and how to actually get away from network issues and things like that Um, and how to charge for upgrades and such. And then my first course actually ever was a denture course on, again, somewhat of how to get out of the reasons that most of us hate dentures, which is that we don't get reimbursed well for them. And so I I get people to change the mentality, not only by making the process of dentures clinically a little easier, but also the process of how we bill and charge for it um, more realistic to the time and effort that we put into it. So for instance, I tell people all the time, I actually love dentures because 
I make about $700 an hour doing dentures on PPO fees. Oh, okay. Um, that's interesting. There's almost nothing else that I can make that much money doing. And people are like, oh, I hate dentures, blah, 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 blah. Well, I did too until I realized that if you can get the dentures to the point that you make a good income doing them, then magically you tend to start liking them more. Go figure. Um, oh, you know, wow. when things are more predictable, you're happier with them. And then I've got a fourth course in progress. Um, the next one coming out is about marketing and return on investment and why the marketing company may not actually be the problem. Okay. Okay. Now, now we're talking, uh, I'm glad you're, you're talking about marketing. Uh, I have, I mean, I can talk so much about marketing, everything, uh, everything is marketing, right? Um, I think there's a book called, you know, everything is marketing, right? Yep. From uh, Fred Joyle, the creator yeah, yeah. of the dentist. Yeah. From, <laughs> it's a good book. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about marketing. It's it's uh, at least my perspective as of now, at least in my office, is we never did any marketing until until March of this year, by the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and our office is three, three and a half years old. Um, it was a startup. Uh, the reason I'm talking about is uh, we weren't really getting good patients. We could mm-hmm. only do so much, uh, even though... We've got good reviews and everything, good work, blah, 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 you know, uh, but there were not new, we had enough new patients too, don't get me wrong, uh, but they were all Medicaid and Husky and, you know, all mm-hmm. that. Uh, we treat them really well, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanted to do a PPO. I want to convert this office into a PPO or maybe, you know, a fee-for-service kind of office if I could, right? So mm-hmm. I talked to my partner, let's start spending money on it so that at least we'll start getting some some patient. That's what my perspective is. Mm-hmm. Because my thing is, if I get five new patients, or at least five PPO or 10 PPO patients, I can make on average X amount of money, and that would pay off my marketing uh, expenditure, right? Mm-hmm. What is wrong in this statement? <laughs> <laughs> well... The biggest thing I think people need to realize about marketing is a lot of us are spending a lot of money on marketing that we don't think about. Every time you have a write-off because of insurance, that write-off is a marketing fee. Right. Right. So when you have a patient that comes in and does just their routine stuff, and let's say your normal cost for that is going to be $300 and insurance only pays you $150 and you do that twice a year, you are paying $300 per year to market that patient in your office. And that's you not doing any dentistry. Now, if you start doing a crown, now, okay, your write-off is going to be $700. Now you're talking about writing off $1,000 that year because of that's your marketing expense to keep that patient. That's the problem a lot of us don't think about is you actually do want to look at your write-offs because your write-offs are your marketing budget. And in most cases, the offices that have gone fee-for-service or out-of-network have realized this important point in that you can spend exponentially less money to do some external marketing and get those patients in, or internal marketing too, and you'll end up better than going all 
PPO. Now, I say this, I'm usually the PPO guy. I'm 70% in PPO. I do it because we can do it efficiently and it's easier. But you got to realize, you got to look at what you're doing. I mean, the downside with marketing, I mean, the upside is it costs a lot less. The downside is you have to put that money out there first. And that's a risk. And that's most dentists are risk averse. Now, here's the other thing to think about, and this is where a lot of people, you know, talk about, I'll kind of give you a little idea of what the course is about, but a lot of people talk about how marketing is, is wasted. Like they put a bunch of money into something and it didn't work. Well, the first thing to, that a lot of us want to blame is that, oh, well, that just type of marketing doesn't work in my area. Yeah. Completely wrong in most cases. The second thing we tend to want to blame is, oh, the marketing company didn't do their job. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Here's the thing to think about. The marketing cycle is that you put your ad out there and then the patient sees the ad. If the ad's a good ad, they will be kind of persuaded to do something about it. Like typically Click. look up your website. That's yeah. going to be the next step. And then they're going to look up your reviews. So if your website reviews aren't any good, then you're going to lose most of your marketing efforts. So those are kind of key horror. But here's the thing. Once you do all the stuff online that gets a patient to want to call your office. Well, that's the next thing people tend to screw up is in most cases, um, offices that aren't well-trained will schedule about three out of 10 people that call the office. Right. Well, with training, you can schedule seven or eight out of 10 of those same exact people. Mm. Well, changing that alone training your team how to answer the phones better will mean a double increase in your marketing effectiveness without changing the marketing company or the marketing budget. And then you think about throughout the rest of that cycle, what it takes to get to return on investment. You have to provide the patient a good experience. You have to actually get them to accept a treatment plan. You have to communicate well with them to kind of get them to that point. You have to actually do the treatment well, and then you actually have to have collection policies that are good, that get you to get paid what you did. Only then do you end up with return on investment. And in most cases, and this is what I tend to walk through with, the course is gonna walk through, is if you have 100 patients that call your office, the average office is gonna end up with about 12 to 16 patients that actually paid. Hmm. 100 patients the marketing company provided, they did their job and the office kills 84 of them. That's the problem with marketing in most offices is it's an internal problem, not an outside marketing company problem. So you're saying we have to train the staff much better, spending more time on converting those, uh, converting those patients into in the chair. That's what makes it worthwhile. Otherwise it's, it's just a waste of money down the drain. Absolutely. Okay. So if I would say if an office is looking at starting marketing, I would first take a hard look at your internal systems and see how many patients you're actually converting. Because if you're converting the average number, your marketing is going to cost you way too much money. And it's going to cost you far less to fix those internal problems first. And you'll actually get an increase in income with that alone. 
and then you put money into the external marketing. And that's why a lot of people will go out and go, hey, my marketing didn't work because you know the marketing company got them 100 patients for their, let's say, $1,000 or $10,000, and the office screwed up 84% of that. Well, yeah. whose problem is that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, isn't this like a, like a vicious cycle? You know, where do I start? You know, <laughs> Uh, for uh, it's such a vicious cycle I see uh, in the sense, uh, I don't know, uh, should I start with the training? Uh, should I start with uh, uh, improving my communication skills uh, uh, or, you know, being nice to my staff so that they can learn what they want to learn? Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, internally, externally, where do you even begin? Because it seems like it's never ending, Right. So uh, uh, for somebody, uh, uh, somebody is new, maybe like me, you know, mm-hmm. what would you say? Uh, I mean, I'm happy with my staff, uh, but I'm still, I mean, we can all improve, right? Uh, that's why that's why this podcast is in. Uh, but for somebody like me or anybody like me, um, what would you recommend? How should they begin? Like step by step, uh, if not step by step, at least generically, you know, uh, hey, focus on this first then this, then that, and so on. So that's a really hard question to answer because every office is different. And so I do coaching for offices and I'll tell you, every office I've walked into has had similar issues, but the severity of those issues was unique to that office. Fair enough. So I've walked into offices where the core team was awesome. They loved each other, but the systems were lousy, and that was the problem. I had other offices where they had great systems, but the core team was lousy, and so that was the problem. I've had other offices where everything was the issue, and I've had some offices where they were very minor issues that just made a big difference, and yet the team wasn't necessarily the problem. So in every office, it's some of it is just trying to self-diagnose and figure out where the worst problems are. But in order to do that, you kind of have to know where the problems lie in the first place. And that's where I suggest people, you know, pick up books or get on, you know, some of these dental forms, which I think are the best resources in the world. I agree. Um, and even the, not necessarily the ones I'm on. I mean, just <laughs> they're so good to get so many dentists in one place to share information. Um, and hell, Facebook's free. I mean, Nothing's better than that. Um, So you've got to figure out, A, what the issues are, B, what a good office should look like, and guess what? That's no different than dentistry. I mean, what were we trained originally in the oral cavity? We had to get trained first on what the oral cavity should look like so that we know when we see something abnormal, we can recognize it. Uh Well, the business is no different. We need to see what a business should look like before we know what's abnormal about it. Here's the upside, though. When you, you know, the old joke of when you get 10 dentists in a room <laughs> treatment planning a patient, you get 12 different treatment plans. Right. Well, here's the funny thing. When you get 10 good business people in a room and you have one business, guess what? Most often there's one treatment plan. Wow. Because businesses across the world in general are not any different. They all have people issues. They all have to provide some kind of service or product. They all have to collect money based on what they do. And they all have to have systems to make sure all of that works well. That's the same 
across the world, across every industry. So the the thing I like, because you know, I'm just the logical person, is I love talking about business more than clinical because business is truly does have a lot of true answers and false answers. And there truly is a right way to do things in a lot of ways. Now, you can tweak that right way a lot because you can put kind of your own personal twist on it, but the scenario is the same. So for instance, when you answer the phone, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. The right way to do it usually takes about two minutes or less. The wrong way to do it takes five minutes or more. I mean, if you think about it, your team only has so much time. And so if you can condense that phone call, which is really what the patient wants too, they don't want to spend five, 10 minutes on the phone with you. They want to spend as little time as possible, make their appointment and then go on with the rest of their day. Right. You know, if you think about treatment planning patients, you know, in most cases, in most cases, patients want more treatment at the same time because we have to take off work or even if we don't work, it screws up our day to have to go to the dentist multiple times. So the more stuff that we can condense within a single appointment, not only the better for the patient, but the better for us. And so these are just general business principles that are the same regardless. I mean, every company out there, if they're trying to sell a product or a service, has to link that product or service to what the patient wants, not what the patient needs or client at that point is what the client wants. Well, In dentistry, we've got to do that same thing. Figure out what the client wants first and then pull dentistry in to provide what they're looking for. And so it's it's all across the board of making sure that we know how a business should function so that we can pick and we can kind of diagnose what the issue in the business is. And so that's, I don't know if that helps explain it, but that's why it's so difficult to just answer that question because every office is different. But in general, I'd say the biggest thing to focus on is your team and your team starts with you. So if you're not a good leader, for instance, you're not going to be able to train them and you're not going to be able to hold them accountable. And you're probably not going to be able to figure out the systems well. And, or you're not going to be able to listen to your team to realize what the system problems are. So, again, it all starts with the leader, and then it goes to the team, and then it goes to the systems. And you may have one of those going well already in your office, which means that's not the step you focus on, even though it may be kind of a more important step. So that's where it you know comes all together of every office is unique. Hmm. So does that help answer? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh- Basically, the leader and follow up with the team so that, you know, the leader is able to at least have an open mind, at least, if nothing else, at mm-hmm. least an open mind to discuss uh, what the staff or the team member actually wants and want and where they're lacking, why they're lacking, and focus on building that up. Once we start building that up, now the internal system is kind of refined, more or less, uh, to bring in the external factor involved and then start tweaking the external factors. How can we improve the team again? Basically, it goes hand in hand. I, that's what I'm understanding. But yep. essentially from inside out. Yes. So maybe an example to help with. Um, a couple examples. And most of my examples are my own personal screw-ups. So 
I bought CAD CAM a few years ago, spent $130,000 on it, <laughs> plus interest on the loan. So I don't even know what that ended up being over the years, 150, 160. Well, we didn't have the training in the office to actually do crowns as much as we do now. Um, we didn't have the communication skills to be able to handle that well. Um, we didn't actually market it externally, which really, if you're going to buy something that expensive, you should be doing yeah. to make it pay itself off quicker. Um, so there was a lot of failures because I wanted to buy the shiny toy that looked cool, like a lot of dentists, yeah. but I didn't have the background systems and team and leadership to actually make that shiny toy worthwhile. I did the same thing with TMJ treatments. I've done the same thing with a lot of different stuff. And so, and here's the funniest thing of all though, is dentists over and over and over again will avoid hiring a coach or hiring a consultant because they're expensive. You know, yeah, they're like 10 or 20 or $30,000. Yeah. And then we go around and, and buy this like hundred grand item <laughs> and it doesn't work nearly as well as it should because yeah. We don't have what the consultant would have given us. So that's the that's the funny thing about it is, and again, I say it because I, I did this, I lived this, is you've got to learn leadership team and systems before you start spending money externally. Because even though it may cost you money to get training, it's going to cost you far less than you're going to lose by spending that money on something else. Makes sense. That does make sense. Um that's the I think the best advice uh, somebody can uh, figure out whether should we buy a scanner or should we buy CBCT or uh, do we have enough number of patients to begin with for me to mm -hmm. even pay off my CBCT monthly minimum <laughs> I need to pay yeah. uh, and so on uh, I think that that does make sense and I think uh, part of the reason is uh, the way we are. Uh, you know, the way our society has told, oh, he is a dentist. He must be smart. Uh, yes, he is smart. I mean, including me, I'm saying. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we are not taught anything about the business and we don't understand and we don't want to accept it at the same time that we could be wrong. We could be uh, wrong and we, uh, we have a lot of... Um, pride in being being the dentist to begin with i think that's what i feel personally yeah and i say i feel that and i feel that every day too and here's the thing to realize is it's not a discussion about our level of intelligence because there's two things i mean there's level of intelligence which is basically the ability to learn but that has nothing to do with our knowledge and our wisdom which is the actual holding of knowledge of that specific thing. So for instance, I consider myself a smart guy. I think a lot of people might agree, maybe, but I don't know a whole lot about accounting yeah. and I don't want to know a whole lot about accounting. Okay. And so I hire an accountant to do that stuff for me. Sure. Well, I am not the most personable person in the world. I'm more of a logical guy. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I think I'm nice and I think people get along with me, but I know there's a lot of better people at, you know, communication and, you know, there's some people with some silver tongues out there that just can sell whatever as can be. And I'm not them. 
So if I need someone like that, or if I need to learn that, I go hire someone to help train me on that. And that's kind of like what a coach would do. Um, you know, if whether it's a coach or a mentor, you know, go buy a book or whatever it is, you know, being intelligent isn't the problem. And so that's what you got to get past is it's not an intelligence issue. It's having the right information issue. Hmm. And as you know, we've talked about several times, most of our level of knowledge and education in things outside dentistry, clinical dentistry, as a dentist is usually lousy. Okay. Because we are so well trained at dentistry. Yeah. And so poorly trained at everything else, almost to the point of not trained at all. I mean, I know some dental schools that don't even bother talking about business. And that's not necessarily a hit on a dental school because they only have so much time and there is so much information they got to throw at you. And, you know, what is it? Something like 97% of dentists will graduate and not immediately go into ownership, um, at least for a couple of years. So from a dental school's point of view, it kind of is a waste of time to train them on business and they don't have the time to do it. Um, and that's where a lot of us end up going out there and then running a business and it running into the ground because we don't have it. Well, it took us four years to learn dentistry. Right. It's probably not going to take us four years to learn business. Cause like I said, I don't think business is nearly as complicated as what we do. It's just a majority of it is things that we've never done before, never learned. And that's where you've got to seek that information out somewhere. So whether it's a book, CE course, a coach, a consultant, a mentor, whatever it is. Um, I would say that, the most successful dentists and the most successful of any industry is going to be people who are constantly seeking new and better information and ways to do things. And they have an innate desire to learn more. Oh, yes, uh, certainly. I think uh, being inquisitive at the same time is, is so important without that, you know, you know, uh, 2019 comes and 2020 would come and so on, 21 would come and just the time would just run away. Um, now, uh, talking about the coaches, did you, uh, uh, did you have any coaches in your initial days? I know you're coaching right now and you do, you are accepting new clients, uh, as per my understanding. But did you have any coaches when you were, you know, climbing up? The stairs, I should say. Oh, yeah. I probably spent half a million dollars on coaches and consultants. And a majority of that money, I'm not saying that anybody should spend anywhere near that much. And that's where I talk to people about. And probably the biggest thing I tell clients or potential clients that I think everyone needs to hear, because this was my problem at the beginning, is if you're trying to pay someone to come in and fix your problems for you, a coach or consultant is not who you should spend money on. There is no coach or consultant out there that can do what you're looking for. And what I tell everyone is in order to actually make good use of a coach or consultant is to go into it with the mentality that I have to make a lot of change. I have to put in a bunch of hard work. I have to get out of my comfort zone and pay attention to what someone is trying to teach me and actually at least try it because hmm. it's going to be uncomfortable at first and it's going to be a lot of hard work at first and it's going to be difficult to do at first. And 
that's why I spent so much money is I hired consultant after consultant after consultant and didn't go into it with the right mentality. And I was looking for, even though I couldn't probably have articulated it, I was looking for someone to fix my business as opposed to someone to teach me to fix my own business. And that's the mentality you need going into it is that no one can fix your own business, but you, or for the associates out there, no one can fix your mentality than you. And so until you can make that mindset change, don't spend money. Got it. But once you make that mindset change, then hiring a coach or a consultant is going to make a massive difference because you will actually change based on what they're trying to teach you. And I'll tell you, I'll probably say for all the coaches out there, sure. I wish more of us said this. And I think all of us want it said because every coach I've ever talked to, the frustrations we have are with clients that will not implement what we are recommending. And then they complain that things aren't working because they're not doing what we're trying to get them to do. That's the biggest frustration any coach is ever going to have. Got it. Um, no, I, I, uh, this is really important. I, I, to be honest, uh, just like uh, the shiny new gadget thing, uh, I personally have been attracted to uh, you know getting my own consultant. But I think it's a good idea to train myself inside out first again. Um, before I even, uh, you know, hire uh, somebody with much more experience, somebody who's willing to teach me, but I should be willing, like, you know, a master, what's the line that you, uh, your uh, glass should be empty before you, it can be filled in again, you know? Absolutely. Um, right? Um, no, uh, so what did you do to, you know, I know you were, as I said, as you even uh, confided in us that you were pretty, almost adamant, not willing to change yourself, but what and how did you even, uh, uh, you know, started to come back, started to change yourself to accept uh, and make positive changes? Um, again, I'd say that was probably because I'm a hard head and I don't learn quickly and I have to screw things up myself multiple times before I learn, which... I'm sure actually describes a lot of people probably listening to this, but me too, me too. it took me a long time to, you know, actually come to grips with that. Um, I ended up going to a bunch of different consulting or coaching, consulting, mastermind groups, and I just pulled little bits out of every one of them. It finally started stacking up that I was the problem. And that's where I'll, you know, I think I've probably talked about this a dozen times and, you know, this podcast is when you can decide that you are the problem, that is when so many things change. And yes, somebody else could also be the problem, but it's almost always you first. And the second that you can realize that the world opens up ups to you, everything you do is going to work better when you can realize that, if I am the problem, then I have more control than anybody else in making those changes. And when things don't go right, I need to first look at what I've done wrong or what I could do better in order to affect change in the people around me. 
it's a hard nut to crack and it's hard <laughs> thing to swallow. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, I agree. Uh, I'm being honest there. Uh, I, it's, it's so hard, but I think as you said, um, unless you uh, keep falling and, you know, all those little mm-hmm. things start hinting towards that you are the problem. I don't think people are willing to change unless either, you know, <laughs> an experienced coach who's like, who's saying, yes, follow me the way I'm doing it. If you do it, you'll be successful. And that's it. Just, you know, unless we have a dictator either in us or on us that can make it happen. Otherwise, it's so hard to swallow saying that I am wrong. Am I right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'll say, I mean, I'm not perfect at this. And there are some things that I still am probably wrong about that I have not yet acknowledged. Right. I, I'm sure my team could probably tell me that if I actually wanted to ask them. Yeah, I should interview um, them too, right? Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, now, I think most of them, I hope most of them would actually say that I have gotten exponentially better over the years, but no one's perfect, and I will probably never be perfect at this, and I will probably always need still more improvement, but that's part of the process, is learning that you're always going to need improvement, and you're never going to be perfect, and the most you can hope for is to constantly improve every day. And if you do that, that is the definition of success I don't think anybody can disagree with, is that you success is constantly striving to be the best that you can be. Because we all have different skill sets and we're all going to be different levels of success. But true success is being the best that you can be. But that requires realizing that you are not there yet and you probably never will be. And so it's the journey of trying to get there that means more than anything else. Very well said. I think this could be the quote in our uh, podcast interview. Uh, Now, I'm going to uh, twist you a little bit here. Um, uh, I hope I haven't twisted you enough yet, but uh, Mm -hmm. I was uh, reading a couple of comments uh, on, um, uh, as you said, Facebook groups uh, for your discussions. And... uh, you said that $1.5 million is possible by removing inefficiencies in the mm-hmm. office, in a relatively smaller office. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. you, uh, you even give an example uh, that uh, it's like uh, $2 million, yes, uh, for a year, in a year, like you could say, which is approximately $167,000 per month, which is 9200 a day at four days a week. So important thing is four days a week. I love that concept, by the way. So, and you say, we should have two hygienists, which takes, uh, you know, one third of your production, blah, blah, blah. So the dentist has to do only $6,000 per day for four days a week. And he can mm-hmm. certainly climb to, you know, uh, one and a half to two mil in a smaller, relatively smaller office. Mm-hmm. How can that be possible? Because <laughs> I am, uh, I honestly, I told my staff that I have an interview with uh, Dr. Campbell and uh, I was talking to my front desk and uh, my assistant and I said, he said to me, or at least on Facebook, that this is possible and you could make basically my office uh, almost double it up in almost no time. 
as you say mm-hmm. uh <laughs> i still don't believe it i'm sure you're doing it okay. uh, uh but comments on that so how was the great pyramid built day by day one brick at a time fair enough right it's every little brick so i mean we've talked about a bunch of the different bricks but for instance if you learn how to deal with insurance better you will get better reimbursements that's more money with less stress less time there you go you just improved efficiency if your team answers the phone better and goes from 30% of patients being scheduled to 80% of patients being scheduled that's a huge efficiency improvement if the dentist goes from the point of treatment planning and getting acceptance of 40% versus 80% that's a massive improvement and all it is is changing how you talk to people and how you listen to people if you look at say a crown prep for instance most of us do them very inefficiently for instance um what we do is i want to be in the room for a crown prep as early as possible pretty much i want the patient seated and i want to be in the room numbing up the patient in under 5 minutes right and i want everything else to be done while they're getting numb right because i have to wait for them to get numb anyway so i don't want them taking x-rays ahead of time i probably already have one or, um that serves enough purpose um until i get the next one i don't want them taking impressions for a temporary ahead of time i want that all done while they're getting numb So I want the assistant to have me in the room as quick as possible. For hygienists, um oh and by the way, I also want, you know, cord packing or tissue changes or retraction to be as fast as possible. Um if you do reverse crown prep, you can take crown preps from being, you know, 15 to 20 minutes down to under 10. I mean, there's so many little efficiencies in a crown appointment that it's just it's crazy to think about how much time we, most of us waste versus how much time it really has to take. Right. And that's including getting all the extra photos and x-rays and everything else that insurance wants. Hmm. It's still faster. If you think about hygienists, you know, in a lot of offices, hygienists will call for the doctor at the end of the appointment, which is like the dumbest thing in the world. Wow. Because okay. When are we ever available at the end of an hour? Like never. <laughs> But when are we available? When we need to be available. Yeah. Our appointments aren't an hour long. Our appointments don't magically end at the end of the hour like the hygienists do. So the hygienist needs to learn that the first 10 or 20 minutes is all about getting the data that we need to walk into the room and then calling us at the beginning of the appointment so that we have a 20 or 30 minute window to walk in whenever our schedule allows. And that's how you can do things like I do. I see four hygienists every Saturday. that I work. Okay. And I have my own schedule. And that's like the easiest day I have. Four hygienists. Wow. Most of the time I talk to people about four hygienists and their eyes roll in the back of their head and they have a stroke. <laughs> But it's all about the system and getting it to where the hygienist actually provides all the information I need. I don't have to look anything up. So those exams are under 5 minutes a piece and they're already around the same time period. and i have a 20 or 30 minute window that within my schedule i can go see them whenever i have time to do it all right let me stop and you so right here just 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I got the idea, but let me just uh, clarify. So, uh, so your patient, hygienist patient starts at nine o'clock and mm-hmm. uh, within 10 minutes, she does whatever she needs to do, right? Mm-hmm. From nine, 10 to 10 o'clock, potentially if she's, you know, uh, scheduled mm-hmm. for an hour. And you are doing... Well, let's say 9.50 because she's going to have to clean up and set up for the next Right, station. I do the so, same thing. Yes. Yeah, I do the 50 minutes too. Great. So, uh, and then uh, the last... So she has those 40 minutes and within those 40 minutes... And you have already started a crown prep or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, you numb the patient, for example. Then you go to one of the hygienists. Is that what you do? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, because now you're saying she's gotten all the information in the first 10 minutes... I can walk in in next 30 minutes anytime I want, not mm-hmm. when she wants. Uh, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay. Makes, makes sense. And here's the thing, too. The other problem with seeing the patient at the end of the appointment, when the hygienist is done, the patient's mentally out the door already working on whatever they need to do next. Right. They're not listening to you. They don't care what you say at that point. But in the middle of the appointment, they're far more likely to listen to what you have to tell them. And if you have to treatment plan something, now your front team has the time to put the treatment plan together before the patient's ready to get up out of the chair. Yeah. So there's so many efficiencies just on that alone. And here's the thing. There are hundreds of little efficiencies like what I just talked about. Yeah. And doing every one of them brick by brick is how you build an office that does $1.5 to $2 million per dentist. But in how if many you years? don't have every brick, I, would, I know offices that'll do it in a year or two because they have every brick together. But here's the thing, and I get I quote unquote debate or argue with people on this all the time. I'm like, look, I'm not anything special. I am not clinically the best dentist. I don't even think I'd probably put myself above average. Um, I consider myself an average clinician. I just am very good about efficiency. And I'm not the fastest dentist in the world, but I'm not anywhere close to the slowest. And if I can do this, anyone can do this. And again, it's one little step at a time. And it's every little efficiency that you do. And the main reason I ever talk about doing $1.5 to $2 million is not to say, yay, I'm awesome, I do it. It's to say, look, if I can do it, you can do it. And that means it can be done. And that means you just have to find the way to do it. If you talk to, and this is what's fun about reading a bunch of books about highly successful people in other industries. Sure. Almost every high-end successful person will tell you a majority of their success comes from the mental mindset that it can be done. Right. Agreed. Because here's the thing. Whatever you think will happen. And I don't mean this is no medical, physical, like the brain is more powerful than anything else. <laughs> it's the brain. The brain is a magical little item in that if you think it cannot be done, you will never get it accomplished because you will find reasons that it can't be done. If you think it can be done, you're likely to get it done because your brain will pu- pick up on the things that are going to push you towards it getting accomplished. Right. It's just the way that our brain works. And so it's always funny to talk to people about saying that I'm like, it can't be done. I'm like, you're right. Because for you, it can't because your brain will not allow you 
to find the ways to make it work. But the next person right next to you that says it can be done will get it done because their brain will find ways to make sure it gets done. Yeah, some people would and say that, that as affirmation. You know, some people yeah. in the woo-woo world, they would call it as affirmation, right? Uh, you know, just put your brain to it, just put your energies to it because, uh, but they don't realize that essentially it's picking up the right attitude, the right questions, the right uh, uh, thought processes to make exactly what you want and to make it happen. Am I right? And that's the crazy part. And that's why I always say it comes back to you. You, you, you. It's all about <laughs> us. Because here's the thing. We will always be right. Whether we think it can be done or can't be done, we will always be right. We will always be right. Yes, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> now, uh, uh, clinically, do you do uh, any uh, uh, big procedures? I don't know, uh, like implants, full mouth rehabs or something like that. I mean, I'm, the reason I'm asking is uh, one and a half to two meals, what you were talking about, is it a regular bread butter dentistry or it does involve something uh, crazy like FMRs and so on? No. So I don't do almost any full mouth rehabs. I Let's see, last year I did two all in fours and I wasn't the surgeon. I brought in a surgeon. Um, and that's pretty much the only full mouth rehabs I do. Now, with the caveat that I do a lot of dentures, and dentures are basically full mouth rehabs, I just don't do it with implants. Got it. Um, and so here's the nice part about dentures. If you screw something up, you just make a brand new denture, or you just cut up the denture. I mean, it's really stupid easy to yeah. fix it. Um, I don't do a lot of massive cases. I do truly bread and butter dentistry on a day-to-day basis. A majority of my patients pay maximum, maybe a treatment plan up to 4,000, maybe. Um, but a majority of them are in the, you know, normal $1,500 to $2,000 as to total treatment. So none of this is talking about like big, massive things that no one else can do. I literally do what people do every day. I just, when you do it efficiently, you can fit more within the same timetable. And here's also the funny thing. I've had people ask me, is it more stressful to do that much more work? Actually, it's typically less stressful. Because in order to produce at that level, you have to have a very good team behind you. Right. And when you have a very good team behind you, they are doing a lot of the work. They are doing a lot of the things that most of us find stressful. And so it's actually less stressful to be more productive in most cases because you're delegating out the things you don't want to do, the things that take more time or take time that you shouldn't be wasting. I mean, think about it. So for you, your office, you said it's hard for you to think about how things, how you can produce that much. Right. So let me ask you, give me an honest answer of this. In a typical average day, not a December, January, you know, your busiest months, but in a typical average day and month, what percentage of time would you say is not spent on productive tasks that actually make the business money. 40 to 60%. Okay, there you go. Yeah. You can now get 40 to 60% more money in the same amount of time, correct? Fair enough. Yeah. You just said exactly what it takes is you take out all of that extra time. And here's the thing. 
even in my office, I mean, we produce a ton, but I still have time to play on Facebook. I still have time to <laughs> quote unquote waste time Yeah, because I could still be doing more. I truly think a, a single dentist office can produce over $2 million if they had the patient population and they truly were working eight to five or seven to four, or whatever your timetable happens to be. And they're productive for every, almost every minute of the day. Cause I'm not even at that point and I'm where I am. So it's, it's all about the systems and it's all about, and this is all I try to provide for people by giving numbers. It's not that you should be doing it. It's that it can be done. And if you want to get it done, great, do it. But if you don't want to produce $2 million in office, awesome, don't. But don't work four days a week either. Yeah. Because that's my big point is you can produce per day of the week that you work, you can produce four to $500,000 in a year. So if you want an office where you only work two days a week, you can probably produce eight hundred to a million dollars in a year working two days a week throughout the year. I mean, that's the empowering part is that's the efficiency. It's not about making a $2 million office. It's about making the time that you spend working so effective that now you have time to do whatever else you want. Got it. And that's what I really push people to learn is it's not about who's better and it's not about having the biggest office and it's not about having the most money. What's truly important in life, in my opinion, is having the freedom to do whatever you want to do. Exactly. Financial freedom and time freedom. Yep. And you don't get that if you have an inefficient office. So whether you want to work five days a week and produce $2.5 million, or you want to work one day a week and produce $500,000, doesn't matter if that level of financials and the time that it provides gives you the time that you want to do things like spend time with your family. Yep. or travel the world or write a book or whatever it is that is self-fulfilling to you. That's the best part about dentistry is it can provide so many different avenues to give us exactly what we want out of life. But it all comes down to one key point is it's being efficient with the time that we do spend at work. Right. And that is the most important no, thing uh, of all of this. Oh, I'm glad you're talking about it because uh, I think um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I did not think that way. But I think I've opened up myself listening to podcasts, uh, you know, reading books and whatnot. Um, I have opened up myself, as you said, maybe not completely, but for a lot. Uh, and and that, that brings us to... Uh, uh, that brings us to some of the questions which I ask from all my guests, you know, uh, and I call them as Tim Ferriss inspired questions. Uh, I think it's a perfect segue uh, because uh, we're talking about success. We're talking about mindset. We're talking about, you know, uh, uh, little things that makes, makes people happy, you know? So uh, if you're okay, uh, I'll ask you a few questions and then, uh, I'll try to wrap it up. It's pretty late for you too, I believe. Uh, but uh, only if you are uh, up for it. Um, Go for it. So, uh, what does your uh, typical day looks like? You know, uh, like do you have any morning ritual or any best practices? Best practices 
that makes you successful or what you do in the morning? Like, um, I mean, I come in in the morning and I am not a morning person. <laughs> so I can see I don't tend to talk much to people. I mean, I'm a night person and my team knows this and they finally learned over the years that talking to me in the morning it's not that I'm going to be mean or rude or anything. I'm just not going to be outwardly like cheerful and friendly and bubbly. Um, and so they just realize they get just the efficient straight answer if they talk to me in the morning, but I walk in, I log onto my schedule. I look through the day and I figure out, you know, what needs to be done. And if there's any efficiencies that can be improved on and move forward from there, we stopped doing team huddles a while ago. Not that I don't think that they're important, but we kind of split them up in that my, the different departments in my office actually kind of have their own little team huddles and do what's necessary for, you know, the intercommunication there. And my assistant is the one that brings all of that to me. And she's the one that kind of guides me around the office during the day. She's kind of like my flow coordinator. Yep. And in most cases, and this is this is a hard transition, I listen to her unless I truly think that she's wrong. Um, and not that she's wrong, but she might be missing something on a patient that maybe I saw but she didn't. Um, but in most cases, even though even when I think she might not be seeing everything, I still go with what she got, tries to push me. So it's it's the follow your team will take you farther than anywhere. Um, and so I'd say that's the biggest kind of thing is realize you need to look through the day. You need to kind of pre-plan the day and you need to, as much as possible, listen and respect your team and what they're telling you. And then if there's a problem, then talk about it later. But trying to argue with them in the middle of the day doesn't tend to work well. And so it's a balancing act there. Got it. So, um, and what about um, <clears throat> um, early morning? Did you do any exercises, any any tea, coffee, you know, uh, any speci- specific r- uh, rituals that you may have that, you know, m- gets um, you geared up for the really. day? I mean, I'm allergic to exercise. <laughs> and I'm not addicted to caffeine, thankfully, because I have addictive personality. So I probably would be if I started drinking it. Um, and recently in the last couple months, I've actually started doing intermittent fasting. So I don't even eat until noon most days. Oh, wow. And so no, there's really nothing I do in the morning. I mean, I get up, it takes me like 15 minutes to get out of the house, maybe around 20 minutes to get out of the house. I have like a 10 minute drive or less to work and I go to work. So, I mean, I don't really have any routine other than trying to be as efficient as possible and sleep as long as possible because I'm an owl. Um, <laughs> Now, uh, uh, I'm glad you're talking about intermittent fasting. I, I'm thinking and reading about it too, you know, uh, courtesy Tim Ferriss. But I am way too hungry. I'm way too hungry all the time. What is your, uh, what had been your experience in, uh, for as long as you've been doing your intermittent fasting? So for me, I've never really been a breakfast person. I don't like most breakfast foods. I try to avoid the starches and. I'm just, I don't necessarily feel hungry in the morning. Now, I will say I do now more um, because what I used to do, because I'm a night owl, I usually stay up till about midnight most nights. Yeah. And so I would often, you know, my family and I eat at like five or six because we've got kids. And so I'd get hungry at like 
10 o'clock at night. So yeah. well, why do you eat at 10 o'clock at night, which everybody knows eating within like three or four hours of going to bed is a stupid idea from a health point. Of view. <laughs> so that was one of the hard things was changing is I don't eat late at night anymore. Um, and in the morning, yeah, I'm a lot more hungry now than I used to be, but you just kind of get used to it of realizing that the, the hunger in your, the hunger in your body is your body burning calories from fat that you should be doing anyway. And at least that's what I've picked up on the intermittent fasting thing. I actually, other than feeling hunger, I don't feel mental like depression or stress or anything else. I just feel like eh, my body's telling me it's kind of hungry, but I got, I mean, I'm not fat, but I've got some excess that it can burn away. So I'm not going to starve. The body will just start eating the parts of itself that shouldn't be there. Um, so how long? It's, a, it's but it's definitely a mental thing. I mean, all diets are mental things. Yeah. But the big thing for me, I mean, I've tried lots of little different diets over the years, and again, not necessarily lose weight, but more to maintain it, um, and to kind of try to stay healthy as much as possible. But for me, I love food way too much to give up certain type of food. So that's why I really latched on to the inter intermittent fasting thing because I, it doesn't matter what I eat, it just matters when I eat. And for me, it's a lot easier to manage the when than it is the what. But again, everybody's different. But the biggest part about changing a diet is it needs to be a lifetime change. It can't be a fad diet. It can't be this yo-yo thing that a lot of us go through. Right. And the reason we go through it is because we haven't found something that we can stick to continue forever. And so far I've been kind of happy with the intermittent fasting and I still do the, you know, they talk about breaking your habits just to maintain your metabolism. So usually like once a week I'll get outside my eight hour window of eating, um, whether it's eat late or eat breakfast or something, I'll get outside that. So my body doesn't, you know, necessarily get too much in a habit of, you know, yeah. not eating within a certain time period, but it's worked out well so far. Has it, um, has it impacted you in, in a, in a positive way or any negative way? Or do you think it's just, uh, just a way of living? I think it's probably too early to tell. How long um, you've been doing it? Two months. Okay. So All right. that's too early to tell. Yeah. All right. But I don't feel any negative results from it. So I kind of feel like if nothing else, that's helpful that I can continue doing it without really thinking about it too much. And so it's something at least I feel like I can continue on for a long time. Got it. Um, all right. So next question. Uh, the best purchase that you made between 100 to to $300 that impacted your life in a positive way? My life or my business? Either. Doesn't matter. $100 to $300. Um, hmm. That's a good question. Well, I mean, I could take one answer and go jewelry for my wife. I mean, that's all it comes for benefits. Um, <laughs> especially jewelry that doesn't break the bank. Yep. Um, Don't know. That is a really good question. I okay. Forget the number. Maybe maybe whatever uh, in the past, or at least in 2019 and this year, uh, that might have 
impacted you in a very positive way? I would probably say a majority of the things on the low end that impacted me the most were good business books. And I mean, those are like, you know, 20 bucks. Um, anything like that is some of the biggest things I get, like changes I make are from hearing other people's successes or failures and pulling stuff out of information that I can pull. So I like to read um, quite a bit. So that's always helpful. Yeah. Um, I mean, I bought a new iPhone this year just because mine was forever old and my team was like jumping for joy. Oh my gosh, we've never seen Dr. Campbell buy another <laughs> iPhone, a new phone. Um, and the new phone's really cool, but it doesn't really change my life at all. I mean, I bought a new computer because I needed one because my old one was like six years old and it doesn't really change anything other than it weighs like 10 times less than my previous one does, but that's not a life changer. I mean, most of it's not going to be objects. It's going to be information. Um, so maybe a book, be, as you said. Uh, um, yeah. Um, so what kind of what book did you like the most, uh, or you've gifted the most uh, recently, or in this year? I can't necessarily say there's any one. I mean, okay. Emith was a great book. Um, Never split the difference was an awesome negotiation book. Okay. I mean, everything is marketing was a great book by Fred Joyle. Yeah. Um, There's so many good books out there. I mean, anything by Paul Homily, he's just so good at treatment planning and talking to patients. I mean, there's so many good books out there. Are you reading any specific book or or on Audible maybe? As of now? I don't do the Audible books because I like actually reading it because I I feel it sinks in better when I've actually read it versus when I've heard it. Um, And I can highlight things, which I feel actually – does a little better job at, you know, capturing that information, actually having it sink in. Yeah. So I know a lot of people talk about they like digital formats. I actually still like the paper format if I'm trying to learn something like a business. Yeah. Because the, the, the tangibility of a book for me still has some distinct value. Yep. I, I, I know many people, I, uh, I know many people who actually love doing uh, a paperback just a feel of it. I, I can underline, I can write, I can go back to it again, you know? Um, I mean, Kindle does the now, same when thing. When I read but, for fun? Yeah. When I read for fun? Yeah, electronic, all the way, because <laughs> I have my phone with me all the time. But no, when I'm trying to read to learn and for business, definitely paper. Got it, got it. So next, uh, if you could go back in your career or life and change one decision, what would it be? I think I know the answer, but still. Uh, I would learn a lot more about running a business before I started a business. That's probably the biggest thing. I don't think I was all that successful, which is funny because I know a lot of people who actually did worse at the beginning. I mean, our first year was only 450,000. And I mean, I know so many people and I mean, we're about to start doing this now with the office I just bought, but I know so many people that do a million in a year. And so, and a lot of that is just knowing what bricks to lay down, knowing how to, you know, actually structure it. And so many of the mistakes I made were stupid mistakes. And I say stupid because now that I know what it is, it just seems so stupid. But I mean, I've made them all. So, you know, yeah, it'd be learning more about running a business before actually jumping into 
being a business owner. Got it. So, uh, did you say that you're buying another new office? Is this startup or uh, or it's 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 an established office? Uh, it's a semi startup. Um, so the office was owned by a dentist for a number of years, and he's a great dentist. He's a great guy, but he just didn't know how to run the business, and he had some issues in his life that prevented him from really moving forward. And so he was doing about two hundred fifty thousand a year, and wow. taking home about ten. Yeah, I mean, just that's definitely not the level of success you would think. I mean, who can live off ten thousand dollars a year? So we bought his office this month, and I've got a partner that's going to work it, and I'm going to help run the business, and we're going to look at turning this office around from two fifty to a million. And I'm actually going to, I'm in the process of starting this. We're going to be doing a weekly video blog on how great. we're turning around great. the office. Oh, that'll, be, that'll be great. Uh, make sure you send it to us uh, so that we can put a show, uh, in the show notes and the link to it, right? Uh, that'll, be, that'll be a good, um, mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, Graham Dursley, I remember uh, years ago, I think it was in Virginia, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, uh, he shared everything what he was doing in his uh, new startups in Virginia. And um, uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from uh, Graham at that time. Uh, I mean, never met him, never talked to him, but I read pretty much all the posts. Maybe maybe I'll be, uh, I'll be listening to and watching your vlogs <laughs> uh, this year coming. Um, I got the pleasure of meeting Graham a couple yeah. of years ago. He's an awesome guy. Yeah, too. I mean, his... I like uh, him sharing so much was amazing. I mean, how many people would share that much? I mean, I was impressed actually. Here's the thing. And this is probably one of those other overarching ideas. Every successful person, like every highly successful person in any industry, they have one other thing that tends to be in common. It's having an abundance mindset. You can have an abundance mindset or you can have a scarcity mindset. Basically, the differences are, for the people who don't know, is a scarcity mindset is that if I don't have something, it's because somebody else does. Or somebody else has something because I don't. That's a scarcity mindset. It basically says there's a a finite number of resources in the world. And therefore, in order to succeed, I have to take from someone else. Personally, I think that's a very negative way to look at life that's very hampering for the person who has that viewpoint. The abundance mindset says that resources in the world are unlimited because they are only limited by our level of imagination. And some of the most inventive and successful people in the world were that way because they came up with something no one else thought of. They didn't take it it from somebody else. They didn't steal it from somebody else. They just came up with something brand new. And the reality is too, that again, working with like a team or working with an office or working with other colleagues, the more that we give, the more that comes back to us. And if nothing else, think of it like karma is the more positivity we put out there, the more people get attracted to us. And therefore, the more positive you are about life, 
the more people want to be around you. And that's patients who are going to be paying you money, team members who are going to be working with you, colleagues who are going to be working, you know, around you, you know, family members, everything. And so the abundance mindset, I think, is so key in that. And that's why a lot of us that are where we are, we'll talk about what we do all the time because it helps us, if nothing else. I mean, for me, it solidifies what I'm doing when I talk to other people about what's made me successful and it helps push me further and it doesn't hurt me to give away information. I kind of like talking to people and I kind of like helping people. And my goal has been to really improve other dentists lives so that they don't have to reach the struggle points I did at least as much as possible. And so that abundance mindset, I think I is completely so important agree. to have. Um, on a very, very similar topic, I think, uh, um, uh, I had some credits left on uh, Audible, and so what I did was I bought a bunch of books, image revisited, and so on. Um, and then I still had a few credits left, and I was like, oh, what to buy? And then I ended up buying You're a Badass. Okay, um, I don't remember the uh, author's name. I'm not good at names. Um, but essentially, if you listen, and I, essentially, if you listen to that book, it's great. It's all talking about law of abundance, you know, law of scarcity, um, and 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 affirmation. How can we be successful just by thought process? Like you know, uh, it was so good. I would I would personally recommend you're a badass. It's an easy book, you know. Uh, you don't have to use a lot of your mental energy to to learn from it. But it's, the way it's presented, it's pretty good. I, I, I really like it. Um, uh, so uh, do, you, do you actually listen to any other podcasts? Any specific ones, maybe? Um, I probably should, but I just, I don't have the time at the moment. Okay. Um, so no, I really don't. Um, I think they're valuable. I think people can get a lot yeah. out of them. I just Okay. Don't have time to. All right. Um, another one. Uh, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Oh, interesting. Um, more along the lines of the things that are less obvious. I mean, everybody talks to me about insurance because that's what I'm pretty well known for. And yeah, that's important, but some of the most important things are the stuff that nobody ever thinks about, which is realizing for yourself what's important in life. And it's a hard journey and it's a hard thing to think about because it means actually asking ourselves some tough questions, but it's the, what do you really want out of life? And most of us don't think like that. So, for instance, you know, a lot of us think about work, 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 and then our family lives or our vacation time or everything else gets cut because work becomes the kind of the goal versus actually thinking about your life and thinking what do you want out of life and figuring out what it will take to make your job fit around your life as opposed to your life fit around your job. And I think that's so key. 
and it's probably one of the biggest things for stress relief more than anything is to realize we have to take vacation and we have to take time off with family and we have to take time for doing things that charge us up because the more we enjoy our own lives, the better we are for people around us. And I mean, for patients in general, I mean, dentistry is so draining on us. I mean, we're working in such a small area and people tell us all the time that they hate it. And, you know, a lot of things we do aren't comfortable and, you know, and a lot of people come to us and say, they just, they hate the dentist or they're in pain or they're upset or whatever. And we have to absorb a lot of that. And so there needs to be an outlet. And I would say that's probably more important than anything else, because without that outlet, you're just going to burn out. And I burned out a few years ago and thankfully I found a way out of it, but I know a lot of dentists who burned out and they didn't find a way out. And a majority of it was, they just, their life wasn't in balance. How, how do you think, uh, you know, uh, somebody, somebody can even learn that important aspect about themselves? What was your, I mean, maybe time, got you where you are but what would you advise somebody who's younger who's who's not even thought anything like that yet uh, but want to give an exercise what would he like what he should do to actually sit down and intentionally write down what they want their life to look like a year from now five years from now 10 years from now 20 years from now in very explicit detail in terms of how many days a week do you want to work and how many days a week, more importantly, do you not want to work? How many vacations do you want to take? How much time off do you want? How much time with family, what your family looks like? I mean, how much money you want to make that fits within that? I mean, and more along the lines of, I guess, more, how much money do you need to make? Um, and literally putting as many details as possible of what you want your future to look like and then backtrack that into what it takes to do today to reach that point a year, five years, 10 years down the road. That's a, a key way to look at life. And if you're not, if you don't have that ultimate goal, then you're typically going to just struggle because you don't have something you're reaching for or you don't have the pathway to reach it. And I am not a list person. I don't like writing stuff down. I I was one in school. I never took notes. Um, And so it's tough for me to do this. And that's why, again, like sometimes when I teach other people, it helps because things like this solidifies the need for me to do it too. But the more we actually plan out at least baby steps of what we want to accomplish, the more likely we are to actually get it Oh, that's it done. a good one. Thank you. Uh, no, that helps a lot. Uh, for somebody somebody who doesn't have any experience, who's young, I think uh, writing it down. I do something similar. Uh, I say that just journal whatever you, comes in your mind. Just dump it at one place. Evernote, uh, your notes section in your uh, on your iPhone, whatever. Just dump it. Just keep writing it and keep reading it. That'll, that will also uh, inculcate and bring in more uh, ideas, what you, exactly what you want. It's a slower process, but it's a it's pretty doable process too. Uh, that's what I, I would recommend. But thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
Um, now, uh, when you think of a person being successful, who is the second person that comes to your mind? Not the first, but the second person that comes to your mind. Like it could be anybody. Person? It could be a fict uh, fictional character. It could be dead or alive, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Once again, when you think of a person being successful, who is the second person that comes to mind? That's an interesting question. Um, All right, let's start with the first one. I mean, I try not to pay too much attention to what other people are doing unless they're doing exactly what I want to be doing. So I, I try not to compare myself too much to others. I just look for trends. And so I'd say it's more of an avatar of someone than I would say I'm thinking about someone in specific. But I mean, what I would consider successful personally is having a good income that is not necessarily completely required your specific work every day, meaning have some passive income that comes into where you can take off and not worry about the fact that you're not making any money. Um, you know, having the ability to look at your life and actually plan your work around it to where you can take vacation and spend time with family and do what it is that you want to do and that there's no limitations on your life. And, you know, someone who's just generally getting out of life what they want to get out of life. And for everyone, that's different. And so that's why it's always tough to not compare yourself to other people because everyone has a different, you know, view of what their life should look like right. as an ideal. Um, you know, secondary to that, I would guess is, Someone who hasn't reached there yet, but is on their way. Okay. So I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, we'll take it. Yeah. Um, an uh, question. Now you're talking about the passive income. Uh, are you involved in some passive income uh, business or something like that, or are you doing anything like that on the as a side gig, maybe? Well, I mean, like this fixer-upper office I'm doing will eventually become some passive income. Um, it's a lot of work up front. In general, I mean, I'm honest with everybody. The CE courses I have online, it took a lot of work to put together and a lot of research and everything. But now yeah. they're passive income because people can get them without me being involved. Um, the book has mostly become passive income. I mean, it took a lot of books to sell to pay off what it took to <laughs> write them, but... Yeah, now it's making a little bit, but I mean, none of those are super huge changes in my life. Um, I've looked into doing some real estate and currently I just haven't put enough time and effort into actually yeah. going as far as I need to with that um, because I'm enjoying the coaching and the business stuff and everything else and it is what it is. Now, at some point, if probably a few years down the road once that all stabilizes, I'll probably look back at the real estate stuff some more and, you know, plan that out. But currently I'm having a financial planner that, you know, puts a lot of our money into things like real estate trusts and or REITs. And therefore we're getting some of the stuff benefits of real estate without yeah. any effort. 
basically. But I know if I learn more about it, there's definitely ways to make more money doing that. Um, so, I mean, personally, though, right now, I'm putting a lot of my extra funds and resources and effort into dental yeah. stuff, you know, the coaching, this new office. And there's a couple other projects I've got going on that will eventually become passive income, but they're just a lot right. of hard um, work up at the front. Um, so uh, you, uh, I'm glad you're talking about your uh, uh, book. Also, I, I I was thinking that what have you not talked about or uh, about what we just discussed in this past uh, two hours, whatever that you also mentioned uh, in your book, Practice Whisperer. Uh, do you want to say anything about it? Uh, what the book is all about? and uh, who could benefit it from? Well, the book is all about my failures. <laughs> um, I mean, so it's it's a story about how I did a startup and what I screwed up and the few things I did right and what I learned through the whole thing. And, you know, I think it's valuable to anybody who is interested in running a business, whether it's a startup or an existing. I don't think it really matters. But, I mean, I think it's a lot of value to people, if nothing else, to learn what I screwed up so that they can find ways to not make the same mistakes. Um, I mean, and I kind of wrote it like a reference manual, too, in that, I mean, it, it's sort of chronological and sort of goes into a story format. But at the same time, each chapter is a different topic, you know, within a dental office, so like office managers and hygienists and treatment planning and, you know, how to how to mentally make a change and, you know, how to define your own success and, you know, different things in there. So, I mean, like I said, I, a lot of the reason I wrote the book is so I didn't have to keep talking about the same stuff over and over again, but magically actually it <laughs> reversed itself. I actually talk about it more, but I write about it less because I just refer people to the book now. So, you know, it is what it is, but I mean, the majority of it's just running the office better and that's why I wrote Makes it down. No, don't don't buy massive pieces of equipment that you know aren't going to get you the return on investment because you don't know how to sell them yet. You know, treat your team well and learning how to be a better leader and you know learning kind of the intricacies of some things on the office and figuring out what your why is and understanding you know overhead and expenses and how they relate to dentistry that's different than most other industries in the world and where all the profit tends to come from. Um, there's just so many little things in there that that's, that's kind of what I wrote it down for. Yeah. Uh, uh, so where uh, where could where could uh, our audience actually find uh, your book? And is it on? Well, I mean, it's it's on Amazon now for twenty five. Um, it's on my website for twenty. So if you want to save some money, you can go to my website, practicewhisper.com. Um, yeah. So, I mean, either okay. one, though, probably doesn't matter. Like I said, I wrote the book mostly to help people, so it's already paid <laughs> itself off, so I don't really care yeah. about that side of it anymore. Um, like I said, I did it to – some of it I wrote just to not have to keep writing about the same stuff over and over again because I found I was cut and pasting a lot to answers to people. And I did it just to get – like I keep talking about, get dentists to not make the same mistakes I did. And so – you know, having it out there, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. Yep. So that's that's my why. Great. 
just no, that, that's uh, that's a good. Uh, uh, I think that's a good segue to. Uh, we should start wrapping it up. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, we've been talking, and you've been very generous with your time and you know with your information. Um, I would certainly recommend everybody to get through uh, your book uh, at practicewhisperer.com. Where could they find you? That's on the Practice Whisperer website. So there's a page about speaking. There's a page about coaching. There's a page about the book. There's a page about CE courses. There's a page about articles I write. There's a page about um, a bunch of free resources like forms to use in the office I've got up there. So there's a lot of stuff on that website. I've tried to make it as much of a valuable tool as possible. And most of the pages are free stuff. So go grab whatever you want. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. Thanks for your time. Would you like to get a really small email a couple times a month to see what hashtag POD is up to? What are we reading? What are we listening to? What are we doing? What's stupid, funny, entertaining, and some weird stuff that we've gotten ourselves into? Then go to podcastsofdentistry.com slash extra. E-X-T-R-A. That's right. Podcastsofdentistry.com slash extra. And you will get a really small email from us to give you that little extra kick and keep you busy exploring the world we travel. You can also find us on Facebook at podcastsofdentistry.com slash Facebook. Thank you for listening. Hashtag POD. And I'll see you inside.